Hello and welcome to another special episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. And this is a different format from our normal episodes. This time I am very pleased to be joined by Adrian Tchaikovsky. For any of our listeners who might not have encountered your work, you are... We were talking about this just before we started recording. A fantastically prolific author who's written lots of different kinds of things. How would you actually describe yourself to any listeners who might not have encountered your work? Well, I'm a yeah. I mean, I, I get about a lot in the science fiction and fantasy uh, genres as a writer. I started off with an epic fantasy series, and I've done other more sort of historically fantasy fantasy stuff, and at least one outright pseudo history a bit of horror and i'm mostly currently known and known for um science fiction since um the publication of my book children of time the i guess the if there's a hallmark to my writing it is it's i write about the human relationship to the other which i suppose mm. is not a particularly unique thing in science fiction and fantasy but i also very much focus on the other's relationship to us from that other point of view yeah so a lot of my characters aren't, aren't aren't human and they and the books focus on the peculiar and frequently difficult ways that they relate to these peculiar humans that they encounter you talked a little bit about the scope of books you've written there but also i think the sheer number is quite breathtaking i mean you've been publishing for what 13 years at this stage 16 i think 16 now oh right okay but yeah, I mean, you've been putting out oh, what a, a book, a couple of books every year, it seems. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, a lot of the a lot of them are novellas, and I do uh, I find novellas a very efficient thing to write time wise. So I can get a I can get a complete submission draft for a novella usually done in about a month, which is a lot more sort of words per minute than I'd get in a novel. Oh wow! I have a writing process that that gives me a first draft that's fairly submitted fairly similar to my submission draft oh gosh yeah which is a bit of a which is a godsend and i think that's the only reason i can i can turn out as much as i do wow yeah that's a rare thing lots of planning <laughs> <laughs> I, and also you seem to as you mentioned before jump between genres a fair bit which i think I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it strikes me as being a, fair, a fairly rare thing in this day and age that most writers seem to be encouraged to sort of stick to a lane or stick to a known property. But you've, it seems almost completely reinvented yourself in the last few years as a science fiction writer. Yeah, we, well, Children of Time was a bit of a punt. And at the time, I mean, what you, what you seem to need, I think, to be able to start jumping about is a certain amount of escape velocity in terms of uh, well, I mean, sales, um, com commercial success. So I think my fantasy books were not stellar sellers by any means, but they were doing okay. Hmm. And they were doing okay enough that when I came to my publisher with this crazy idea of I want to write a, a book about giant spiders now to space, <laughs> they kind of humored me. And it, you know, it wasn't put out with a huge amount of fanfare and until it basically hit the um the clark award shortlist it kind of wasn't doing what doing you know any kind of sales numbers and was just destined huh? to uh vanish and then it was the um the shortlisting just seemed to to make something click and abruptly everything was was going absolutely crazy and it did very well um but that was really that was just me as a fancy writer doing a bit of a punt for a science fiction novel because i've always been a science fiction reader and i wanted to write i'll do my one sci-fi novel and then it'll probably be back to the fantasy mm. but of course it, it took off i'm now very much on that i'm a science fiction writer and that's what most people know me as and it's actually fairly rare that i get a chance to go back and do fantasy which is something i mean i've had i think since children of time i've had one fantasy novel um and the a certain amount of shorter fiction. I've got a fancy, a fancy novel on the horizon when I finish my current project. But other than that, it's all been science fiction because that's suddenly what people 
want from me in terms of sort of publishers looking for me, looking for stuff. All right, but your goal then is is very much to try to keep feet in both camps. Yeah, it's. I mean, I get I, I get ideas, and I get a lot of ideas that can only really work in a fantasy setting. You couldn't do them as um, any kind of science fiction. And there's a certain amount of um, Borderland. I wrote a book called Cage of Souls a while ago, mm. which is kind of a Jack Vance dying Earth sort of setting. So it's science fiction and fantasy really all at once, and you get this mixing of the of the trappings and the uh, the tropes of each of each and just you know there's always that kind of um that spectrum between them where you can dip in in the middle and have a bit of um a bit of science in your fantasy and a bit of fantasy in your science i guess Mm. i mean i'm doing a space opera at the moment which is basically a more fantastical science fiction than um that i previously approached Oh, marvellous. Uh, is this the one that's just about to come out this week, is it? Or? The first one is just about to come out, and the, the last, the third of the three, is the one I'm currently halfway through writing. Oh, wow. So it's a great big conveyor belt. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I absolutely love that fusing of science fiction and fantasy. I grew up with, uh, say, Michael Moorcock's Dances at the End of Time and the Dying Earth books mm. and Clark Ash and Smith's Zothique and uh, M. John Harrison's Vericonium. And so, yeah, that, that kind of approach really speaks to me. The unfortunate thing is it's, it's a bit of a tenuous genre to write in because um, after its great first flowering, it's never really had a massive comeback. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's a bit like Westerns in films. It never really goes away, but it's, never, it's, it's, it's not quite, it's never become the thing again. But I, I mean, I love reading it. And I really enjoyed um, writing. And Cage of Souls is very much almost a kind of a a love letter that, to that entire genre of um, that entire sort of subgenre of the fiction. Oh, fantastic! I did actually buy that a couple of weeks back, and it's it's very close to next on my list. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, speaking of which, uh, th- the book I'm reading at the moment is Made Things, which, uh, well, when I say reading, I'm listening to the audiobook, and I was surprised uh, to find that you're the narrator on it as well. <laughs> How did that come about? Um, so I've, I've done, I've not, I've narrated three novellas so far. Hmm. Um, the first one was Walking to Aldebaran, which I think we, we may, may mention later on because it's my, one of my most horary ah. of, of, of my books, but it's, I came to that because I, the first chapter of Walking to Alderaan, or the first section, uh, Alderaan, not Alderaan, uh, <laughs> is very readable. And I used to do it a lot at conventions in, in reading slots. And mm. I had so much fun doing it because it's a first person narrative. And so it falls very naturally to, to kind of recounting to an audience. And I thought, well, what if I could do the whole thing as the audio? And that turns out to be something you can kind of wheedle from the uh, the publisher and the uh, the company doing the the audible book and that that worked pretty well and i didn't know how it was going to go beforehand and it was all great great unknown but yeah we 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 got it done it worked fairly efficiently not too many um, kind of retakes and errors made things with a bit different because it's the third person narrative with multiple voices and that stretched mm. me a lot because i mean i'm despite a bit of amdram in my past i'm not i'm not an i'm not an actor but i was i was with a lot of practice i was able to get enough i think distinct voices for the characters that it works oh yeah but the first person the other one i've done is also first person and that's definitely easier mm-hmm. um purely because even when you've got other characters speaking you're kind of filtering them all through one one perspective is that something that you found i'm going to jump ahead slightly here in our discussion but it's something we'll come back to later is that something you think being a gamer has helped with as well that uh you know finding voices for characters and ways of portraying them is something that you know is a skill that you perhaps developed at the gaming table as well definitely yeah i mean i like i said i i have a i have a certain vaguely shameful period of amateur dramatics in my past but i think the only reason i got into that was because i was already gaming and it does it Mm. gives you a certain amount of rough and ready acting experience but also i think it gives you a certain amount of confidence in taking on the mantle of a character Mm. and because i mean my my gaming history is probably more gming than playing taking on sort of many many characters at once as has frankly been an enormously useful apprenticeship for a variety of um of aspects in in the in the writing We'll come back to that later, I think, because I very much want to talk about how gaming and writing 
connect to each other. Before we get away completely, though, from the writing side of things, mm. uh, th- uh, yeah, as you've moved into science fiction, or rather as you've been writing a lot more of it, I mean, you mentioned, you know, say, the Dying Earth books and stuff like that. What is it that sort of informed your your work, or what is it that's inspired you over the years and, and perhaps excites you now? The one writer who had the most influence on my own creativity was probably Diane Wynne-Jones. Oh, right. Uh, I read a lot of her work growing up. And one of, and, and although she's obviously writing for a, um, uh, what would they call a mid, is it mid-grade, what they call now, sort of the, the band below young adult, so a mid-grade or a young mm. adult audience, she writes exceptionally elegantly complicated plots. And she has a lot of um, kind of sudden reversals that you don't necessarily get in a lot of books written for that age group. Uh, there are a couple of her books in particular, Homeward Bounders and Power of Three, which have the most um, kind of astonishing twists towards the end that as a, as a younger reader, I was not used to you know, coming into contact with. And especially with mm-hmm. Power of Three, there's a big twist in the, who are actually the heroes of this story or these various ah. cultures you're meeting. Um, and especially, yeah, there is a culture that you're, you are, that is presented as a very explicitly monstrous culture. They're presented, they, you know, they don't look human. They've got weird eyes. They have weird magic powers and they appear to be very much the bad guys. And there is a switch halfway through the book. We realize actually that's not what's going on. And then just mm. as you're finding your feet with that, there's another switch that gives a completely different cast to the entire world of the book. And it's that sort of thing that really, I think, set me on the road to the sort of writing I'm doing now, because it's the idea that your heroes don't have to be the characters that would normally be the heroes. Mm. Yeah, I can see that particularly strongly in Children of Time. Yes, and I, I, I mean the other, <laughs> the great influence is the um, the Roger Corman film Battle Beyond the Stars, <laughs> which is his um, his mag- sci-fi Magnificent Seven sort of yes. Seven Samurai take, because there is a character in that who is a kind of a really scary looking kind of lizard alien called Cayman of the Lambda Zone. And he's one of the heroes. And he was absolutely my favorite character as a kid. But also he was just this this kind of sudden light going on saying, this this kind of really scary alien thing, they can be the good guys. They do not <laughs> have to be the kind of the malign invaders. And that sometimes you just need to see something like that to know actually, yes, you have effectively permission to do this. Yeah. And I, I think that takes us on very nicely to the thing that inspired me to want to speak to you like this in the first place, which is having read a few of your science fiction books now, I am very, very taken with the way that you portray non-human characters. Uh, well, I mean, not just like aliens, but your books are filled with uplifted animals and distributed intelligences and human intelligences that have changed in various ways and AIs and stuff like that. And you have a real knack for getting inside their heads, for portraying them as both sympathetic, but also as being, well, not not human, being alien, being strange to us. For a start, I mean, what is it particularly that draws you to this theme? Because it's something you seem to keep going back to. I mean, I'm, I'm in the, what is probably a fairly common demographic amongst um, gamers and science fiction readers and so forth, in that I'm someone who grew up as quite a kind of um, an isolated, a socially isolated um, child. I found, I, you know, I, I was bullied a lot at school, all the usual sort of thing. I had a, a, a small, a very small group of friends I was very close to, but beyond that, I didn't really do any kind of social contact, so I grew up feeling very othered. And they, I mean, and, mm. and this is, I mean, I appreciate this is me speaking as a a white cis man in modern day Britain. So I, it's it's by no means as, as othered as I could have felt, but mm. it was still a bit. I I was very fond of things like nature documentaries and so forth as a kid. I always had a penchant for those animals that most people didn't like. They kind of <laughs> that kind of became my sort of. <laughs> my mental tribe in a way so it was always um invertebrates especially arthropods reptiles anything that got a bad press was very much my my kind of thing and so um you go from that into kind of reading traditional fantasy or science fiction you find these things are very seldom given a good a go in the literature see so, you know there are there are 
like a million cat aliens um, and, mm. and some dog aliens and various other kind of um, very, very human aliens and so forth like that. But you very seldom see anything that is genuinely non-human. And when you do, it's, it's you know, you, when you get a, like insect aliens, they're almost always just sort of disposable bad guys. Mm. I guess I kind of grew up feeling that there was a balance I wanted to address. And then as I, you know, I went through a bit of a, a, a science degree sort of education and became a very, very inter- interested in things like um, evolutionary biology and so forth. You kind of think, well, what are the actual logistics? If you, um, and the, I mean, the, the whole point of um, Children of Time with the, the kind of evolved spiders was there was some genuine research on a real world species of spider that demonstrated that it had really very, very remarkable cognitive capacity. Um, so you have a you have a spider that can demonstrate things like object permanence and so forth, which it takes humans a while to develop. Mm. And so I thought, well, you know, it's entirely it seems entirely possible that given a bit of a clear run, that could have been the dominant species rather than us. Mm. Um, I'm very much of that kind of the the evolutionary mindset, the basis that the humans being on top is much more a result of chance, just. Luck, luck and flaw during the evolutionary process than any kind of manifest destiny. And so it seems to me, it just seemed to me that I, I really wanted to write and explore that. And I seem, in order to do that properly, rather than just saying, oh, yes, just yes, humans will inhabit, in, encounter the planet of the spiders, you kind of need to have the planet of the spiders. And in order to ground it enough for my human readers, I'll probably have to throw some humans in there. <laughs> somewhere but the spiders are very much the point and very much the main characters you sort of touched upon there the way that you're addressing as well the the whole idea of othering which mm. is something i think that genre fiction has been trying to address or perhaps struggling a bit with its legacy in recent years i mean i see this an awful lot in horror particularly in lovecraftian horror which is pretty much based on that yeah but yeah, certainly in science fiction, fantasy as well, it's something Dungeons and Dragons has been trying to address recently. I, do you see your work as being a conscious part of this? Yes, certainly. With with stuff like the children, children of time, or dogs of war, one of the big, the serious point that the book's making, aside from all the running around in space and things like that, is it's it's about empathy, and it's mm. the idea that um, you you can actually form that level of empathy, that sort of empathic bond with um, things that are very inhuman indeed, if there are sufficient sort of will on both sides. If you're doing a story about humans meeting spiders in outer space, there is a standard sci-fi narrative that people are kind of set up for. And so it's all about, uh, the book is all about subverting that narrative. And my other approach is to yeah, it's one, one, one benefit to using spiders is people know what spiders are. People don't <laughs> like spiders. They're absolutely predisposed to have spiders as the menace that must be exterminated, Starship Troopers style. Yeah. And so the challenge that I set myself in the book is fine. By the time you have that great big showdown, I want my, my readers absolutely on the side of the spiders against the humans. Mm-hmm. And I think that mostly, that mostly does work without me cheating outrageously. Yeah, just by having the humans doing very overtly human things, and the spiders running into human challenges and solving them in better ways. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's, it's very. I, I think most, I, I guess, most approaches to othering in, in uh, genre fiction, naturally enough, are about the impact on the humans of that mm. encounter. But most of my approaches are very much more about the impact of the on of the other on meet on. Um, meeting humans, whether positive or positive or more often negative. Yeah. In fact, it's only just occurred to me that certainly in the books of yours I've read so far, that it is very much these alien characters, these alien intelligences rather, or non-human intelligences who are taking the initiative, who have sort of taken it upon themselves to create that empathetic bond that it's, fundamentally about them trying to overcome that human resistance, that human tendency to see them as something, well, as you said, disposable or horrifying. Yeah. Or even, I mean, there's an awful lot of, um, because I read a lot of kind of short science fiction when I was growing up and there is, 
a huge amount of very colonial Mm. science fiction out there which is basically we go to the planet and we find the aliens and the aliens are doing a funny thing and they're not doing it properly and we can basically show them how to live their lives better and they're terribly superstitious but eventually they see their way to doing things the human way and that is better because the humans are kind of inherently better at things even as a kid i didn't buy it really Mm. i always always when you got the kind of the aliens kicking back against the humans the human thing and even with the author desperately trying to explain to you that the humans were so much better, and if only the aliens would just... I was always on the side of the aliens and just wanted... I want, kind of wanted the humans yes. to go away, and I would stay on the planet with the aliens and learn about them doing their thing, rather than them basically being having their culture overwritten with human ways of doing things, because that was progress with a capital P. Um, and there's so much of that out there, and a lot of it mm. absolutely targeted to kind of young readers. And... I think I was lucky that I was of the my that I was of that mindset that always identified with the creepy looking alien because it did lead me to question that stuff from a very early age. I think one of the books that made a light bulb go off my head along those lines. I don't know if you've ever read it. Was uh, the Iron Dream by Norman Spinrad, which I think, especially considering when it was written, was a fantastic lampooning of all the things that have been baked into golden age sf that we just didn't necessarily see as being as horrifying as they were mm. and i've got i mean i mentioned starship troopers a bit earlier and it's it's um certainly in the film version um there is absolutely that understanding if you if you look beyond mm. the surface layer it's very obvious who are the good guys and it's not the humans or at least that was my reading of it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I think Paul Verhoeven was quite adamant about the fact yeah, that this yeah. was, you know, sort of his critique of, of fascism. And I, I think it's fairly unique in cinematic history as being one of the few film, or oh, possibly the only film adaptation that is a satire of its source material. <laughs> so, you mentioned a little bit before about how you'd developed the intelligent spiders in Children of Time, but obviously you've created a wide variety of non-human intelligences in your books and presented them in these compelling, compassionate ways, getting inside their heads. Uh, how is it that you go about – I mean, if you set out writing a book about, um, you know, say – Let's take dogs of war as an example. These uplifted animals with mods mm. that you know, give them human intelligence, or in in some cases, distributed intelligences. I mean, how is it you go about trying to get inside their heads and and create them as you know, living, uh, empathetic characters? For any kind of non-human um, creature, the first element I tend to start off with is the the, uh, the sensorium. Mm. So you get a lot when you meet Rex in Dogs of War. You get a lot of things like sense data and hearing data and so forth that you wouldn't be using if you, if I was working from the point of view of a human character. And then beyond that, you have uh, I mean, in Rex's case, obviously he's human made and he's very much defined by his relationship to humans. So that mm-hmm. that kind of dominates his early thinking. And then early on in the book, he kind of gets cut off from his chain of command and has to start effectively almost constructing his own personality and his own priorities mm-hmm. and, and ethics uh, from scratch uh, and with the help of his other his other kind of non-human squad mates. But certainly starting off with that, the idea of the sensory data and how any kind of entity experienced in this world is going to be absolutely key in what is important to it, what is what sort of tools are available to it, um, and how it is then going to interact with other things, including humans that it encounters. And um, so, and you know, I do the same um, with. I've done the same with spiders in a couple of books. There's um, a book, a fantasy book called Spiderlight. I wrote, which is hmm? the the basic shtick of which is there is a very traditional D and D adventuring party. It has a prophecy. It has a dark lord. But in order to fulfill the prophecy, it has to recruit a very Mookwood-style giant spider into its <laughs> ranks to go and fight the Dark Lord. And hilarity and indeed tragedy <laughs> ensues in various ways. But a lot of the book is told from the point of view of the spider, which gets transformed at one point into a kind of a human-ish 
but still fairly horrifying looking shape and doesn't like it because from the spider's point of view being a human is terrible and its skin is suddenly soft and vulnerable and it doesn't have mm-hmm. enough eyes and it's lost half its senses and it's just the idea of um because usually when you when you have the idea of, you know so you're turning animals into humans like the kind of the mice in cinderella and that's fine and they adapt really well but actually that would be an insanely traumatic experience <laughs> Oh god, yes, and especially obviously when you when you're when you're moving that much kind of biological distance from um, even invertebrate to vertebrate. So, uh, but it's I mean again, and it's another way of just it's using the other as um, a way of dis disassembling, deconstructing the human condition and and questioning human priorities and things like that. It's also a big. Uh, there's a lot of. Um, it's a world which has a kind of an alignment system in it. In that they, mm-hmm. these things are good and these things are bad, and there's this sort of inbuilt light magic will destroy dark things and stuff like that. So it's kind of written in that yes, we are obviously the good guys because we use light magic, and it's just a a, a, <laughs> a deconstruction of that particular kind of gaming mentality about well we can kill these things they are evil i'm so glad that gaming is coming to terms with that because that's something that's troubled me for a long time i mean in call of cthulhu and DD, that there are certain races that are just inherently evil that you can kill guilt-free to some extent i think we've seen it in zombie films and media as well that you know these are the other people that we can kill because it's it's necessary the worst example of it is i think uh, among a variety of worsts potentially is uh, in the star wars prequels with the uh, the battle droids which are basically mm-hmm. right so instead of having stormtroopers we'll have robots and you can kill as many robots as you like because you can't possibly feel guilty about killing robots, except mm. at the same time you're in a universe where robots obviously have personalities and sort of inner <laughs> yes. lives and are effectively living. But they get through a lot of robots <laughs> in that, in those films. And it's, you know, zombies are exactly the same. Zombies are things you can destroy in a suitably heroic manner without guilt or remorse. And, you know, and again, I mean, insects, insect enemies frequently fall into this category. Um, so I feel particularly aggrieved about the whole, and obviously in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien goes into mental gymnastics to find out how orcs can be sufficiently evil that you can just kill them even more than you can kill the evil non-white people that he also has, has killed. But there's that, you know, the orcs don't, orcs get very little shrift and kind of get just swept away at the end with their dark master sort of thing. And it's just the idea that you see that there's a certain type of science fiction or fantasy that needs this enormous horde of things you can kill without feeling bad about it. And if you think about that in terms of human history, that's super problematic. Well, I, I'm sure we'll come on to Call of Cthulhu later, but yeah, I think it's something that we've seen an awful lot with things like Deep Ones in, in Call of Cthulhu, who I mean, I've, I've been quite taken with the way uh, Rosanna Emrys has, has sort of taken that. I don't know if you've seen any of her work. Uh, she has uh, Plenty of Earth and, and Winter Tide and so on, in which she's sort of uh, tried to humanize Deep Ones, perhaps in a similar kind of way as, as some of your work, um, but sort of presenting... Um, Deep Ones seem to be one of those um, species which actually does... There's there's a certain there's a certain amount of they're a bit like goblins in D and D which are always getting kind of redeemed in various ways. Mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of almost sim- fairly sympathetic tapes on takes on Deep One. I mean I think I mean I think Charles Stross in his um in his oh, work yes. has um we, we all, there's this whole kind of we have effectively diplomatic relations with Deep Ones and you have kind yeah. of cross border yes. operations with us and the Deep Ones and things like that. Um, in in his uh, laundry files, well, I don't know what it is about Deep Ones. They're certainly not written to be in any way sympathetic, but something about them seems to to click with people. I wonder whether it's because we've come to see Lovecraft's racism and xenophobia for what it is, and as a result, that makes us look at his presentation of entities like Deep Ones in a more critical way than people might have initially with, say, Tolkien. That would be a nice thought. I mean, certainly of of his kind of mythos creations, I think they're one of the most explicitly kind of 
racially problematic ones when you look at how he's yeah with with his ideas of miscegenation and things like that so it will be nice that 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 is why deep ones kind of actually tend to get better press than a lot of um a lot of kind of monstrous creatures do before we veer completely away from uh, your own work with non-human intelligences, I, is there any other specific research or processes you go through when creating characters? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, particularly of say the distributed intelligences in uh, Dogs of War and Bearhead, uh, or, or even the sort of alien intelligence in Children of Ruin. Actually, I mean, honestly, the, the biggest single challenge I've ever done is is also Children of Ruin, but it was the um, the Earth-derived, um, the evolved octopuses in that. Yes. Purely because they... they and th- I mean, this was entirely research-based. There was a book called um, Other Minds by Peter Godfrey Swift ah, in, the, in the Acknowledgements, yeah. which is an absolutely superbly readable sort of resource for um, octopus cognition, basically. And it's very much based on his, um, his, his writing and that, but the idea that you have a, a brain, which, a, a, well, a, di- a distributed intelligence within one body in that, at that mm. point. So the, there's certain there's certainly a fair amount of theory to suggest that the the arms of the octopus are capable of a certain amount of processing in and of themselves, and the arms kind of link together as a unit of arms, as well as leak, linking to the main brain. So the how an octopus mind works must be very alien. That's certainly the, bringing that to the page from the point of view of the distributed octopus was very well, frankly, very nearly broke me. But yes, in the same book, you have something that is genuinely alien. Um, mm. uh, in that it it is experiencing the universe at a completely different level to either humans or octopuses or spiders for that matter, and mm. so when it encounters um, sort of Earth life, um, a great deal of tragedy ensues because of a complete lack of understanding mm. um, of really where what what even other life is. And what other intel- intelligence is, and what it, and effectively what it is for, and that the, those sections of the book give me my my best written horror mo- horror moments in mm. any of my writing so far. I think um, without me ever really intending it, <laughs> and I think that that, that, that was that was because I, I kind of when I was reading back over those sections, I read, actually this is this is I, I've I've done some genuinely good creepy horror stuff here. Mm, yeah. Oh yeah. Purely because I've absolutely immersed myself in the point of view of, of this very, very non-human thing as it encounters people, and it—that's the sort. The source of the horror is really just that mismatch between what it, how it sees what's going on, and how the, um, and the, effectively the subtext that the readers will be working at and working in, knowing what they do about the situation. One thing that makes that so horrifying is the fact that, as you say, it isn't malevolent. That, you know, it's it's all very easy in horror to present evil or malevolence and, you know, make that horrifying. But sort of misguided neutrality or or even benevolence creating horror like that, I think is always so much worse. Yes. I mean, the uh, I think the... If we, if I could assign a human personality trait to the, to the to the alien sort of intelligence in that book, it's almost ebullient curiosity. Yes, it's very very keen to meet people. <laughs> what, what is it? We're going on an adventure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a phrase which I have now ruined for a large number of people. <laughs> uh, and, and also. Going back to the octopuses in that book, the way that you portrayed the octopus society that had developed as they'd got intelligence and the fact that they were still sort of dealing with their very conflict-driven animal natures, the the evolutionary processes that had created them to be perhaps quite hostile to each other and to outsiders, and balancing that with intelligence, I think again, made them quite frightening, not because they were malevolent, but just simply because they were driven by emotions and desires and drives that are just not human. The way they ended up, they're almost the anti-Vulcans because 
the they have a their conscious mind is entirely about emotion and they have a lot effectively a logical subconscious which kind of gets things done behind the scenes but they don't understand <laughs> yes the rational sort of process of it so they effectively they have a subconscious that can do complex maths but they can't um consciously they are sort of the eternal artists just flouncing about the, in, in their very brightly colored world be, being <laughs> being emotional at each other I loved everything to do with the octopuses and that. And it, I, actually, one of my favorite moments in the book, or well, not single moment, was the just the constant disagreement amongst all the human characters about how you pluralize the word octopus. I know, it's just, <laughs> that, that appealed to me so much. <laughs> all right, we've touched upon gaming a few times. What do you think out of the approach that you've developed for your own books we can, you know, take as gamers or learn as gamers to sort of present you know, alien intelligences, non-human intelligences in games. I particularly call of Cthulhu, but just gaming in general. I mean, a lot of it comes down to motivation. There are situations in in um, sort of Lovecraft in fiction where you kind of know what the the monsters want. And there are situations mm. where the monsters are doing a thing and you know they're at least going to do a thing, like a, a hand of Tindalos, say. You don't know why it does it. You don't know why it is so the privacy is so very important to the hand of Tindalos is 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 a mystery. You just know it's it is so. But it, I guess it's it's getting behind that. It is um both because occasionally if you if you have a thing that is doing a thing and that thing is plainly sort of rational and important and yet completely incomprehensible, that can be a very creepy thing in and of itself i mean there's um in the um in my in this this uh, space opera shards of earth that's uh, that's coming out very shortly you have a uh, a sort of a cosmic scale race of creatures called architects and what they do is they turn up and turn inhabited planets and only inhabited planets into enormous reworked sort of avant-garde art, um, artworks <laughs> oh. to the detriment of everyone living there and it's only inhabited planets. They do it with a great deal of care and skill. It is obviously very important to them. No one had the faintest idea, and people would obviously rather they stopped doing it. But without even knowing why they're doing it, how do you ask them to stop? That certainly seemed to resonate with a lot of the earlier reviewers. It's just the idea that these things are so big and so powerful, but absolutely have a purpose. And it's not a destructive purpose per se. It's just sort of incidentally so. But they're doing a thing, and it's very, very important to them, and we have no understanding of it whatsoever. Mm. And that seems to work very well. But there's also the situation where you can get a very alien creature that's doing a thing, and you do understand why it's doing it, and it's doing it for very for a human reason. I mean, the um, one of my favourite moments in all of the um, Lovecraft fiction is uh, at the Mountains of Badness, where you have the creatures. They've woken up from their kind of hibernation. They're surrounded by people. They have to defend themselves, and then what do they do? They have a little sort of scientific investigation. What are these creatures we've met? Let's dissect a few of them. <laughs> yes. And it's just that point where you kind of, because obviously it's, it's not immediately apparent that's what's happened, but when you click mm. that that's what was going on, one of the reasons I like that particular story is that you do get a great deal of sympathy for the other in there. Oh, it's yes. one, of the, one of the rare cases where by the end of it, you the, the monsters are genuinely kind of present. Yeah, you know, there is that whole line, you know, these were men. and yes. You, it's a bit iffy because what Lovecraft's delineations of what constituted men <laughs> were yeah. um, are potentially problematic. problematic. But it, <laughs> certainly, when I when I encountered that as a as a reader, you think, well, I really purely on a science fictional level, I, I the idea that you've got these things and they're very inhuman, but they're still kind of working at that human scale. It's just that obviously humans don't really figure to them particularly as as, as sentient creatures. And that that for that moment when you realise actually what they were kind of doing, what any human might have done, in mm -hmm. a, especially you know a scientifically minded human might have done in a similar situation, is very chilling and creepy on its own, purely because it it brings you closer to the other rather than making the other that sort of you know it's sort of infinitely distant. Yeah, thinking about obviously the other big the other kind of big bad is that the perennial favourite in that story of the, is the um, the Shoggoth. Mm. And obviously in the story, the Shoggoth presenters, well, this is just kind of a marauding, kind of hooting, gibbering thing. But you kind of think, well, actually, 
they presumably have some sort of intellect and some sort okay. of drives and desires of their own. And what are what are the Shoggoths after? And what might a Shoggoth make of a human being? And and I mean, in a way, the the collision between Shoggoth and human might be very similar to the the situation in Children of Ruin, in that mm. you've got something that is not necessarily you know, has no actual malice towards humans. It doesn't want to eat people. It's not that kind of. Well, we had we had we had um, a discussion a while back about gothic and cosmic horror. Mm. And the idea that um, gothic in, in gothic horror, the creatures are very interested in humans, and they're kind of they, their world revolves around the humans, so vampires and things like that. Yes, but in cosmic horror, humans are very incidental to it. So a Shoggoth's concept of a human is going to be very loose, and the idea you know, a Shoggoth may not have any malice when it disassembles or devours a human. That may just be what it feels things outside itself are for, and that's its way of kind its own way of mm. scientifically investigating something is to break it down to to a, an interesting soup of basic molecules. But mm. I think once you establish those motivations, it gives you a much broader and more nuanced palette of intera- potential interactions you can get between um human characters and the um and the inhuman ones now you've written a bit of lovecraftian fiction which we've mentioned a passing on the podcast and uh i know that a number of our listeners have fed back on which was that book you co-wrote with uh caris mcdonald and adam gauntlet the private life of elder things which was actually my introduction to your work in that you you particularly i mean all of the writers to some extent but you particularly focused i think again as you know as with your other work on the minds of the various lovecraftian entities there and their motivations and i i was particularly taken with the um was, i can't remember what it was called the yithian story oh uh season of sacrifice and resurrection yes yeah yeah it, in that yeah you you take uh, you know a lot of these elements that were there within lovecraft but then I think sort of not quite strip the mystique away or strip that otherness away, but certainly present these entities as being, I don't even want to say comprehensible, but... I'm aiming for sympathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I think there is is a very kind of narrow hinterland where you can actually get sympathetic without necessarily Mm. just reducing them entirely to kind of people in funny suits or anything like that. Another kind of basic tool for kind of work of, of working up a non-human intelligence is there are probably going to be some commonalities. Purely, if you, even if you go far as far back as this thing wants to survive, that's still a commonality mm. with humans, and that's still something where if you put it in a survival situation, you can empathise um, with it, even if everything else about it is um, alien. Even you know, even if it's not even made of the same stuff that same matter that regular life is made from the idea of extinction probably still has some sort of um relevance to it and you can you can build up from that and there there's there's certain i mean i'm not a subscriber to the kind of the philanthropic theory of um, kind of aliens at all but mm. i do think that there, there's some merit in the idea that as you develop an understanding of the universe you're potentially going to converge in that understanding with other things that share the same universe as you. And obviously, if we're talking Lovecraftian fiction, sharing the same universe is not always a given. Mm. But you, you know, obviously, if you're working on the same physics and you're working on the same um, sort of periodic table and things like that, then potentially you get to a point where you could have a common understanding and a common uh, priority with something that is very, very alien, um, purely because the universe is giving you all the same tools. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, although with Lovecraft, there is also this question of scale in that, you know, the entities you wrote about in The Private Life of Elder Things are the things that operate very much at a human scale. Mm. But at the same time, he wrote these stories about godlike entities that are truly beyond human comprehension. Though, you know, I think with entities like Nialathotep, there's a bit of a fudge there in that, yes, this is beyond human intelligence, but he behaves very much like a human being and looks like a human being. It sounds like, you know, what you were talking about earlier with these avant-garde artist aliens, that perhaps there's some commonality Mm. there. If you were to try to portray a godlike alien, uh, a Lovecraftian horror, 
would there be any particular approach or anything particular you draw upon in order to bring that to life? You run the real data because I think once you start trying to work with that sort of thing at a human level at all, I think you end up running into like the Derleth trap of Mm. you give it a morality, you give it a kind of a, a place in the cosmos, you make it malign or benign, either of which I think is is almost like it's a doorway to to a fairly dull, fairly archetypal way of dealing with any kind of creature is to say, well, obviously this thing is is deeply concerned with people and it has familiar relations with other things that are concerned with people and, and it has a cult. And one of the things, um, it's quite up in the air, I think, in the story, um, The Call of Cthulhu, as to whether any of the things that the cult members are saying are necessarily yes. anything to do with the thing they are worshipping, or whether it is a purely a human conception. This is this weirdly enough. This is another thing I'm, I play with in um, Shards of Earth. There yeah. is a very powerful alien race um, called the Essil. They have uh, they're the kind of the big space empire that humans meet, and humans are terrified of them at the first because they're obviously profoundly technologically advanced. They've got lots of other species kind of living under their kind of rule, and People are, well, they're obviously about to invade us and take us over, and they don't. And they keep sending messages, which appear to be invitations to come on and join our empire, but they don't at any point sort of turn up with a war fleet and enforce it. They just keep asking nicely. <laughs> and then eventually, some, and they also, they're asking through some of their subject races because the SL are very alien. And huh. eventually, there are humans involved, and the humans kind of form a cult, which believe the SEL to be these kind of semi-divine beings that have come to kind of give us all of these advantages and rule benevolently over us. But at no and various human worlds actually go over to the the SEL hegemony on this promise. But at no point is it clear that the SEL actually really understand any of it. <laughs> oh gosh. Or that their own conception of what the relationship is is remotely like what the human cult members are saying because they're very alien indeed and everything you see of them they're doing something and again it's very purposeful and they obviously know what they're doing and they obviously are very very powerful but at the same time nothing they're doing quite makes any sense on a human level <laughs> and they're the way they react to things doesn't yeah they you can do with do something that a human polity would absolutely take offense at and the sl don't care and you do a thing that is very trivial and the sl treat us as very very serious which is generally bad news and working out where the the lines of what they how they feel the universe and, and in sentient creatures interactions are is almost impossible because they're so weird and so the whole cult thing arises this weird this kind of um almost like a lubricant to make human and SEL relations work in any way at all and i think you you've got the same kind of um in mythos cults like you say, you, I mean, when you get to Nialothotep, he turns up and he has a chat. And there's yeah. certainly some sort of element of him where he can shrink himself down to the point where he can interact meaningfully with people. But with a lot of the more alien things, you get the impression that the, they may not realize they have cults and priests. And I can't for the life remember who wrote it now, but there was a, a mythos short story I came across where you had a group of deep ones. And they are going to Elie and they're going to free Cthulhu and bring out the, the, the new age where they should be and they get they shall be ruling the world. And they get there and he's already gone. <laughs> and the city's completely empty. He just left and they, they yeah. didn't even know that he'd just oh. laughed off. Oh, that's brilliant. And so the idea that even the deep ones are basically irrelevant to to Cthulhu. Mm. I mean, going back to what you were just saying though about these aliens from Shards of Earth, when you're creating or writing these ineffable aliens who operate by completely different sets of rules obviously you know like you say you're not really necessarily trying to get inside their own heads because that would bring them down to a human level but how do you i this is something that i was struggling with a bit when we did the cosmic horror episode which is Mm. how do you present the ineffable in a way that isn't just throwing random stuff out there and hoping some of it sticks yeah, I mean, I so with with the SEL, there's kind of a basic. I start off with a basic truth, um, working in my kind of evolutionary biology factor. Well, this is where they kind of came from, and this is mm. the thing that shapes their interactions. And it doesn't get explicitly say in the book at all, but it's, it was very important that I know this because then that that gives, even though you don't necessarily see the um, 
see the strings, as it were. It does mean that the resulting structure of how they interact with everything has a logic behind it um, mm. and has an obvious pattern to it. I think that's that stops it being just that, like, I think it's, you do quite often see this idea, well, this creature is completely alien, therefore it's just going to do a lot of random stuff. And yeah. that will show how alien it is. It's just going to basically sometimes maybe it'll help you. Oh, maybe it'll maybe it'll harm you. Maybe, it, and then every time you meet it, it does a different thing. And it's it's, and that's that doesn't I think get across the this idea of this is a believable kind of alien thing. It just this is a, this is a random encounter table on legs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the the idea that there there is getting over that there is some yeah. sort of governing logic it is not just not the go- a governing logic that you have the the keys to um mm. and i think for that you probably as as a, a writer or as a gamers master having some basic idea of this is this is the, this is a true thing about these creatures which informs everything and then you just build layers and layers around that until the the kind of the what the armature is completely hidden by the the papier mache or whatever you you put on top, but as long as you know what that basic shape is, that that will give you uh, the toolkits to then present them as a a credible but still alien thing. I, I like that. I mean, the, I guess the other the other thing is um, there are certain stock interactions, especially in games, that we're very used to with monsters, and taking those off the table. Um, mm-hmm. is probably quite useful. So having the monster that can kill you but doesn't is probably the simplest yes. one of those. Is just, you know, there are lots and lots of monsters in games of all stripes where the monsters, the point of the monsters is to try and kill the humans or the characters or, what, or whatever, and the point of the characters is to try and kill the monsters. But have the monsters where either they have reasons for not killing you or you know, they potentially even have a conception of mortality where killing other things isn't something they would even think of doing or they have a genuine morality where they won't want to kill you and maybe that's actually more worrying because possibly they're saving you for something or the idea that you can end up at the mercy of the monster and the the monster either doesn't care enough about you to kill you or is genuinely solicitous about you in a way that is supremely worrying and completely inexplicable (laughs) might be more a lot more effective than the thing just trying to kill you while a lot of horror is based on it, having monsters that are just trying to kill you is possibly the least interesting thing they can do, because mm. uh, at least within the game, because, you know, all right, the threat of death is interesting, but death itself in the game, not actually that much fun. Yeah. And um, I mean, also, I mean, vice versa, having a um, manufacturing situation where the players need to keep the monster alive is always interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've touched upon gaming a number of times now and mentioned in passing that you're a gamer, but let's just dig into that slightly. What is your background in gaming? I kicked off with um, Dungeons & Dragons back in the, God, what would it be, in the 80s at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've been gaming for a very long time indeed by this point, and I played a fairly wide variety of games. And it's one of those, it's a hobby I never really stopped doing. And um, I honestly, I think that if I hadn't been a gamer, I wouldn't be a writer. Uh, I think mm. it's, it's, it is that has been that influential on my on my kind of my creativity. There are a couple of really useful sort of toolkits you get from playing and running games. Uh, it it's a very good way of getting your head around world creation, mm. especially because if you're a games master, you tend to have to build a world to a more exacting level than you do as a writer, because as a writer, you can control where the characters go. Huh. Yes, yes. Uh, but also just, uh, as, and especially as a games master, the ability to put on an, um, a multitude of different characters um, is, a, is a skill you, you can get quite used to. And then it's enormously useful when you are working on a book with multiple, uh, multiple point of view, for example. So you can put them on and take them off very quickly without having to kind of ease yourself into each particular persona. And I, I read somewhere that your first fantasy series, the Apt series, came out of uh, a campaign that you ran. Yep, it was a campaign I ran quite quite a long time before I actually wrote the books. Um, back when I was at university, it was for a horrible homebrew system that will never see the light of day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and that that I, the world and a few plot elements and characters um, got translated into the into the books, but. Be- 
the reason I think those books worked well, as well as they did was because I was very, very comfortable with the world because I knew it so well because I had to create it to that kind of um, mm. sort of crash test level uh, <laughs> in order to cope with the, what the players were doing to it. It's interesting. Uh, you're talking about how the gaming feeds into the fiction there. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Nathan Ballingrood, and who's also been a gamer for most of his life. And he was quite adamant about how he keeps the gaming and the fiction sides of his life completely different, that he sees them as completely different creative processes. I think it, a lot of it depends on what, the, what your creative focus is, because I do always mm. start with the world. I'm always mm. interested about telling stories in a particular world, and what the stories are arise organically from where the world's kind of friction points are, and the characters arise organically from the sort of people who would be interesting to write about who would live in that world. Um, a lot of writers, if you're starting from the character or if you're starting just from the actual the plot, then potentially that kind of games-based focus wouldn't be as useful. Yeah, yes. For me, the reason I, I write sci-fi and fantasy and the reason I read science fi- sci-fi and fantasy um, and game is to explore those worlds. And it's something that, uh, that no other mm. genre can really do for you. Does your gaming world or your gaming life still uh, inform your writing or have they branched off into two different things now? Um, I think there's certainly a certain amount of um, crossover. I mean, it tends to take a while to filter through. But it's like I say, the, um, the, the Shadows of the Apt game was, I think it must have been a good 10 years before the... Well, maybe not quite that long, but it's certainly many years before the book. So it's there'll be moments in games that I'll remember, and then they will tend to kind of... Um, Hmm. just get stored in the back of my head until there's an appropriately shaped slot in the project I'm working on. So it's been a while since I've done something that is, that's been that explicitly based on a particular game. It's more a matter of sort of um, cherry-picking elements that I feel have kind of created a particular kind of emotional moment or a particular, um, just a particular set of elements that I, I, I feel I want to do more with. Going back a bit to Private Life of Elder Things, that... Hmm. Yeah, you know, it seemed to be very much a departure from the other stuff that you've been writing because it was very explicitly horror, albeit of a, I guess, a not particularly horrifying kind of horror, more sort of fantasy-based <laughs> horror. Um, is is that something that you see yourself ever going back to, or was that just like a, a one-off project? I think the um, the kind of the, the explicitly Lovecraftian elements of um, Elder Things was probably a one-off. Mm. I, I tend to prefer the science fiction in mm. Lovecraftian fiction to the outright horror element of it. I yeah. find that more in, in more the, you know, especially in that cosmic horror element, the the idea of treating the creatures as aliens rather than monsters. I guess in that, and as um, as something other th- other than sort of purely supernatural threats to actually, because I find obviously once you're treating it as an alien, it becomes. It's something that has more of a, that motivation that we we're talking about. It has more of that kind of ra- rationality to it, even if it's an alien rationality. Whereas a, a supernatural threat can be essentially just purely malevolent and purely um, monstrous. And although it can certainly have um, motivations, they're frequently quite human motivations. Um, with um, if you're going straight into into that kind of more traditional supernatural, which lead does lead to a lot of interesting. Um, opportunities of writing that science fiction horror and it's one of those you know mm. science fiction horror is absolutely a thing um, oh yeah yeah you know, whether, whether you're going from alien or um and i don't mean minority report what do i mean um oh good lord what is the f- the film where they where they the ship comes back from hyperspace and it's oh event horizon event horizon thank you minority report completely different thing <laughs> and i mean my my best take on that i think has been um walking to aldebaran which is um mm. One of the novellas I do, I do the do my own narration for, but it, it's on the audio. But it's the idea that you've got a great big object in space towards the edge of the solar system. There's a manned mission to it. Things go horribly wrong. One character is basically left wandering completely alone inside this kind of the maze interior of this object, which does not seem to abide by natural laws which appears to be a kind of a nexus where you can literally walk from our solar system to other points in the universe if only you can find the right path and he's trying to find the worth path back to earth and 
it's one of those you know it goes on and it's all it's all it's all first person it's told from the point of view of this very personable he's um gary rendell he comes from uh stevenage uh he's <laughs> he's you know he's a perfectly decent normal bloke except as the book goes on you kind of really, maybe he's not uh as as decent or as normal or as much of a bloke as <laughs> uh, as in a human as 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 ah. he necessarily should be but he hasn't necessarily worked out all of this so it's all in the in the context and that 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 was a lot of fun actually to write and mostly because i when i do first first narratives i tend to work from the point of view of, the, of people who are very very bad people but who may not necessarily <laughs> realize it and you can quite quite happily telling you of all the things they've done that to the reader they went, those are bad things you've done and they don't they, they don't quite register even though they tell you about all their exploits quite how unpleasant they have they have turned out to be <laughs> and touching upon what what you were going into there I, it strikes me that a lot of science fiction you know certainly a lot of the science fiction of yours that i've read and you know a lot of other science fiction addresses many of the same things as cosmic horrors just the the way that it approaches them that you know like you say it's you know whether it's like you know if you're presented with the truly alien or the ineffable the incomprehensible whether you look at it as a source of horror a source of wonder or a source of intellectual mm. stimulation because i i frequently i'm writing from the point of view of what would normally be the horror i guess um <laughs> yes i think it's it's often very useful because once you once you have a kind of a horror's eye view of humanity you can you you can it kind of it almost closes the circle you can kind of see well actually looked at sort of dispassionately maybe we are quite monstrous or maybe we are quite yes. weird and irrational and you know how um how we treat the world is often severely problematic and that's you know if, if if alien if aliens were to turn up and look at the earth now i think that they would they would likely be a bit dismayed by the way we were you know <laughs> trashing the planet and so taking that um taking that um, external point of view and looking in i think i mean one of the things if you're if you're writing honest science fiction genuinely honest sort of so, solid science fiction then I think it's kind of hard to avoid getting into that cosmic horror territory because you basically end up with things like um, Stanislav Lem, you end up oh, with Solaris, yes. Yes. or you end up with the um, roadside picnic yes. um, from the, Str the Strugatsky brothers. Two of my favorite books. Yeah, and, and they, are, they are phenomenal explorations of, in a straight-up sci you know, science fiction vein, of that sort of cosmic horror of meeting the utterly ineffable other, the thing that... Again, it's doing a thing, and you can you can see it's doing a thing, and it's got a purpose for doing it, and we can't understand the purpose, and we can't even necessarily understand the thing it's doing, but just as a side effect of it being done, it's having enormous human cost, especially in, in Roadside Picnic, because obviously... and then we, I can never remember there's a Gibson short story that has a... William Gibson has a similar kind of vein where there's a point in space you can go to where you contact a thing... And anyone who goes there basically ends up killing themselves because it is just intolerable to humanity to be there. But they bring back things like cures for cancer. And so we keep sending people there to die, oh, wow. no matter what safeguards, because of the possible chance of just getting another world-changing discovery. And it's, it, it, it has a, it's kind of quite a similar theme to Roadside, Roadside Picnic, but it's just that idea that there is this, this point where you touch the utterly ineffable. So what is it then that drew you to writing Lovecraftian fiction, well, both in the private life of old things and in the more science fiction-focused cosmic horror of, of some of your other work? Well, it, it is absolutely and purely for the monsters, for the, for, the, um, <laughs> for the creatures. I mean, when a friend of mine first got hold of, um, it would probably be in third edition Call of Cthulhu, way back, the thing that resonated me with, with the creatures, the only reason I went mm -hmm. off and then got hold of Lovecraft to read was because I wanted to find out more about the creatures, frequently mm -hmm. which, which extra knowledge failed to materialize in the stories, annoyingly enough. I still <laughs> have no idea what a sand dweller is or why. Um, <laughs> they're, they're like koalas, aren't they? <laughs> Apparently so. Burrowing, those well-known burrowing koalas. Um, but the fascination with the Lovecraft bestiary 
has has was always been at the root and and so when when it came to um me going to um to Keras and Adam and pitching the pro life of elder thing it was just the idea I want to write a book about how these creatures interact with people in unusual ways yeah and that's very much the the shit for that and it, but it's mostly because that's absolutely the point the part of the mythos I am most interested in is these creatures and their the 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 friction points between them and humanity basically and in in a way that's not simply oh yes this thing is going to eat you but all the weird spaces that get opened up through the uh but not necessarily explored um from the original fiction yeah i think it's it's interesting how there have been a lot of academics and scholars who focused very much on the philosophy behind Lovecraft and his worldview and it being a reaction to modernism and all these deep philosophical aspects. But fundamentally, the thing that we keep going back to is he wrote great bloody monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and terrible human beings. <laughs> All right, then, just to wrap things up, what is next for you? What's what's in the pipeline? What can people expect? Um, so I have I have a, a few different things on the go at any one time. Um, certainly the big series is the uh, the final architecture, starting with Shards of Earth, um, May 27th in the UK and out in August in the US. For my own what's next, as in work in progress, I'm halfway through the third book with that one. There's also a, there's a series of novellas I've been doing with Rebellion, which I've got a couple on the way, a couple yet to go. So um, One Day All This Will Be Yours uh, came out earlier this year, which is my novel about the, yes. my novel about the absolute worst time travel, which uh, again is, is first-person <laughs> narrative from a, from a very bad, bad man, and that was great fun to write and indeed to narrate. Um, but there's a, there are a couple more coming out, um, one of which is Ogres, which will probably be next year. Mm-hmm. And I also do some novellas with in the states through Tor.com with a book called Elder Race uh, coming out, which is not Elder Race in oh, the yes. Lovecraftian sense in any way, but does definitely have some of that that cosmic horror element going on within it. Oh, fantastic! When when, when might that one be due out? I think it's going to be about the it's either end of this year or beginning of next. I'm not entirely sure. They've certainly we've got as far as there is a cover for it, and they're just starting the run up. So I would think probably late this year. Oh, marvelous! Oh, I'm really looking forward to that one. Thank you again, Adrian, for joining us. Uh, that I mean, that's been uh, thoroughly enlightening and very, very entertaining. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Hello. Blasphemous tomes. Dot com. Mm-hmm.